Hi folks, welcome to episode 20 of the World Western Nation podcast. Coming up in part two of Talking the Day the Devils Dropped In with historian Neil Barber, we'll be discussing the actions by those men of the 7th Parachute Battalion and the Ox and Bucks Light Infantry in holding the two bridges over the Khan Canal and River Orne. We also discuss the commemoration beyond the 75th anniversary, as well as a few of the brave actions that took place around the bridges in those first 24 hours, including one Neil believes should have seen a Victoria Cross given for. Just a quick note, these episodes were not recorded in a studio, but inside an original C-47 Dakota, now used the gate guard at Colchester, so apologies in advance for some of the background noise that points during the episode. So we mentioned the 7th Parachute Battalion. What did they have to do on the night of uh, D-Day? It was their job to get to the bridges, Pegasus Bridge, as it turned out, um, to in effect, take over the defence of the bridges from the Ox and Bucks. And they had to get there as quickly as possible. They'd go across the bridges and then take up position at both ends of Benneville, which is one of the things which a lot of people forget. They just think the Ox and Bucks got there, defended the bridges until the commandos arrived, kind of thing. Um, which, of course, they could never have done on their own size of the force. Again, unfortunately, their drop wasn't particularly good. Um, but eventually, about, what, about a quarter of the battalion reached Benneville. Again, they had an elaborate plan. Well, not, not, it's obviously not elaborate as Colonel Lockways with an attack, but each company and some of the platoons had specific jobs to defend uh, certain positions, but that all, that all went out of the window. Um, but essentially, a company went, got to the bridge. It wasn't company strength, but members of A company got to the bridge, um, turned left at the T junction as it was, and went into uh, the village itself. Um, as far as um, the, there's a maternity home uh, crossroads there. This was not long before dawn, really. They took up position in that area. B company men went up to Lepore, which is kind of the northern end of the, the village, and that will be where the first contact was made with whoever got there first from the Seaball landings. The C Company men were sort of used as a reserve. Um, Colonel Pinecoff in the CO, um, their headquarters was just south of the church at Lepore. The battalion actually, um, which had assembled on the RV at Ronville, They'd heard an explosion at the bridges, which kind of made their mind up that they had to get there as quickly as possible. There's a lot of debate about the time they did get there. Sometimes you can read half past one or you can read three o'clock, but obviously it was somewhere in between. And there were certainly little groups filled with going straight to the bridge rather than to the RV, depending on where they were dropped. Um, but they got, they certainly, the majority of them started to get there when this, when Wagger Thornton, Wagger Thornton knocked out that armoured vehicle, they thought the bridge was under a heavy attack, so then that made their mind up to get there. That's when they did, they arrived, the ammunition in, in the vehicle was still cooking off as they went went by. And so just to clarify, Wagger Thornton was in the Ox and Bucks? Yes, yeah, there, there was, um, it was the first real, I mean, when the, the Ox and Bucks at the bridges, the first real action as such had been when 
the commander of the garrison there had come from Romville in his staff car with a, an escort bike. It reached the Romville Bridge. The motorcycles had been shot, but the car went quite a way on, or quite a way along the bridge, before, or along the road across the bridge before it got knocked out. And you can actually see it in that aerial photograph, the famous one of the three gliders. It's usually cropped, but in, a, in the one that's not cropped, you can actually see it. And it's, it's not really that far from, from uh, Pegasus Bridge. So that was the first, first action. The first action from the other end was um, some armoured vehicles, which they'd heard about half an hour before and had gone straight across the T-junction going south to north. Um, in that time, John Howard brought one of the platoons across Dennis Fox's platoon, to which um, Wagger Thornton belonged, uh, and he was given a pier and sent up this road. So when these armoured vehicles came back again, they reached the T-junction, stopped for a bit of a, sort of, I suppose, being wary of what might happen. It's debated they did have a bit of a conversation there, but that's not sure. But the first one started to come round the corner and advanced down the road. Uh, and Wagger let it get to within 20 yards before he fired the pier, because it needed to be that close for a pier. Uh, and he hit, hit the vehicle, it started exploding. And that kind of deterred the Germans from actually making any further effort. Um, so that's what kind of puts that in context. The, um, that's when the 7th Battalion began to arrive shortly after that, or the majority of them. And so that's the explosion they'd heard from the RV in Ronville? Yes. They were coming down that's to right. yeah. um, Major Taylor, Nigel Taylor, was the A Company commander. Uh, his second in command was Jim Webber. And throughout that morning, the attacks became heavier and heavier, heavier with armour, armour cars, tanks, this, they were amazing how they put up such a fight really with just peers. It was quite close, you know, the houses were quite close with gardens, that kind of thing, so I suppose it was difficult for the Germans in a way, but um, there was there's so much heroism went on in Benneville at that end, it's rather frustrating that I couldn't find out more because there's so few in A Company left. Obviously, you know, some of them got killed later on in Germany and this sort of thing. But it would have been nice to actually make a bigger example you know, with, with facts and put first-hand accounts of what, just how much resistance they put up. But even so, even with what we do know, Jim Webber was, um, I mean, he should have won the Victoria Cross. He was put in for it. He ended up with, what was it, three or four wounds in him and still was in command because not Major Taylor had been wounded when a, uh, a tank had fired a shell at him and it hit, ironically it hit a wooden um, telegraph pole and a splinter had gone straight through Taylor's leg. So that's when Jim had taken over early in the morning. Um, and there's innumerable accounts of Jim's bravery, not just in fighting back but also and he, he actually got back, because A Company had cut off for long periods in Benneville, and he made his way back through Portman and Company, which in itself was amazing, the amount of Germans in the village. Um, obviously you've got um, 
quite a well-known story of George Parry the Padre. There was, there was two roads in Benneville, the main road and the lower road. And a, a tank and an armoured car managed to get onto this lower road. And this had been where the uh, battalion had set up regimental aid posts, one for more seriously wounded and one for less so. Um, Captain John Wagstaff was in charge of the, the main surgical bit and Parry was with the, this little regimental aid post about 50, 75 yards a bit further back down the road. Well, Wagstaff saw, as soon as they came round this corner, Wagstaff saw what was happening. So he managed to get all his men out and they kind of hid in this, uh, I don't know how to describe it really, they got out this, they were upstairs and they got out this window and the ground's a bit higher there and they managed to get there and the Germans came into the compound, saw all the medical kit, um, but the French owners managed to convince them that they moved on when they saw them coming, they left. So it was, the Germans moved on and it's all a little bit of a mystery exactly what happened, but um, one thing for sure is Parry was killed. How he was killed and why, no one knows for sure. A lot of people say that, um, the Germans started shooting the wounded and this kind of thing. Um, but Michael Pinecoffin, who's the grandson of um, the CO, has looked into that and the casualty figures don't quite, you know, add up to a slaughter type thing. You know, he's got, he can account for most people kind of thing. Um, but I, and I always say that there's another example in Romville later in the day with, with David Tibbs, another medical officer at that time with 225 field ambulance. And when he got to his main dressing station, there was a big barn full of wounded. And when he went in there to start tagging them, this kind of thing, uh, he noticed that they all still had their weapons, which of course was against the Geneva Conven Convention. But he wouldn't dare say, you know, take these weapons off them. Um, and then a little while later, it was because that was very near the front line on, on D-Day at Rongville, like the Labada Rongville. Um, they heard all this fighting going on just down the road. And a chap came running to the door, shouting, the Germans are here, the Germans are here, and this sort of thing. In a bit of a panic. And, but um, amazingly, he didn't panic any of the parrots. They were telling him what to do. And uh, of course, they all started getting ready to fight. And obviously, that shouldn't be right, but that's parrots for you, for one thing. Would that have been deemed another massacre type of thing? So you just don't know without some survivors who give you first-hand account. We don't really know about George Perry, but um, certainly that was where he was killed for whatever reason, whether he did put up a fight. Um, it does make you wonder though, I mean, why shoot the Padre? It's unusual. You mentioned um, first-hand accounts and that, that Sort of is the basis for your books, isn't it? The, the interviews with veterans um, that you've met. What, what was it like uh, going to meet these men and talking with them about their experiences? Um, well, first of all, yeah, that, that's what I wanted. Um, I didn't want an author narrating what they told, you know, what they told him kind of 
thing. I wanted the reader to listen to what they actually said. There's more honesty. You're not interpret, interpreting their words for them, so you can't make a mistake. I think. But and also, of course, their memory. You have to you have to be very careful because um, it obviously it was a long time ago. So you have to do whatever you can to corroborate what they say. So just to put that in the context, but um, meeting them, uh, I always say it was, well, even some still probably still, not, not as bad today, but I was always very reticent about bothering them. You know, it always felt like you were imposing on them or, but no one ever was like that, really. So it kind of snowballed and I was always waiting for someone to say to me, who the hell are you? No one ever did. No one ever did. And that's from, well, from general, really, from, from Crookenden to Brigadier Hill to Kernlock Bay. No one ever questioned, really, um, what your qualifications for doing this. Um, it was amazing, really. Amazing. So the men were just... Fascinating. They're all very self-effacing. I don't think I met anyone who was well, big-headed or anything like that, or blowing up his own story or anything like that. I can't remember anyone. Do you feel privileged to have met so many? Oh yeah, crikey, I've been lucky. I mean, very, very lucky. So, it's been a privilege. I mean, Brigadier Hill will always be a massive hero of mine. What a man. He had an aura about him. You know, even I could sense that. I mean, when on the trips across to Normandy each year, there was always a great atmosphere on the boat. And he'd only go now and again. Um, but when he was on the boat, the whisper would go round. You know, it, it was amazing. amazing. Um, and to actually meet him was really something. In fact, to, sh to show you, um, I mean, he lived, um, he lived at Chichester and I went down there. I'd sent him the, because I left it, I left it a while because I knew, I didn't want to, what's the word, show my hand too soon. I wanted to prove that I wasn't mucking about properly. So I waited until I had the script in a pretty good state before sending him a copy. And that's really what interested him. Um, I think he was, well, he was, he told me he was pretty shocked at uh, someone who's not involved in it, taking the trouble to you know, go around and see all the men and, and put something together in, in fact, when he, when he wrote the, uh, the foreword to The Devil's Dropped In, um, he, he described it as a rather unusual format. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, when I was down there, we obviously had a lot to discuss, and um, he wanted me to stay over, which was, you know, I would have loved, absolutely loved it. But my wife had not long given birth before that, and her dad had died, so she wasn't in a very good sort of state of mind. So I, I apologised and said, no, I'm sorry, I couldn't. But the next day, this huge bouquet of flowers arrived from him for my wife. That just shows you the class of the man, really. Incredible. Great man. Yeah. And um, Crookenden, 
I mean, crooked and it's just a phenomenon, really. It's one of these people that you seem to have boundless energy, absolutely boundless energy, and, and to be and to be brilliant at whatever he did. And, uh, what a man! Oh, um, Colonel Lockway. I was really, I really liked Colonel Lockway. Um, he gets an awful lot of bad press, something like from a lot of people who never met him, just heard about it. And of course, I'd heard about it before I met him, so I was very apprehensive. But um, he was very polite. He didn't—he didn't suffer fools. That's that's for sure. Um, I think he was one of these people. It was, no, it was actually no doubt he was very, very proud of his men. Um, but he would never ever tell them that kind of thing. You know, you know, it was, at the dinners, it was always very correct. In fact, as an example, he. If, if the guest of honour was making a speech and someone was talking while they were speaking, he would just tell them to shut up. You know, just roar at shut up, you know. <laughs> um, so he did have a thin fuse, but I, 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 I mean, I interviewed him, I think, four times and saw him at dinners and out in France, and I always found him to be polite. And um, I mean, there were certain things, you know, people say, oh, he was, he was miserable at the battery and all this. Well, there was one occasion, particularly I know where he wasn't happy, where they, it was the first time he'd done a meal on the battery. That was a big no-no for him. I mean, it was sacred land, his men had died there. So he's not exactly going to be too pleased about that, but he was diplomatic enough not to complain to the French or this about it. You know, mm. but, um, but yeah, I liked him. Uh, just talking about um, the veterans, um, we're on the eve of the... 75th anniversary at the moment of D-Day. What, what do you think will happen in Normandy when we reach that sad but inevitable time when there'll be no veterans left? Um, things will get bigger, no question about it. Um, I remember going to the 70th, 70th anniversary of the Somme and there were about a dozen veterans still left then. Um, can't believe we're at the same position now. But um, when you look at the interest in the First World War and the attendance figures to visit the sites, they're astronomical compared to what was going on back then. I mean, two years ago, the, um, I, always, I always used to go to Loch Narga Crater at 7.30 in the morning, and there would be well, not even 50 people there. And then last year, well, no, say two years ago, Oh, it'd be great to do that again. I haven't been out there for all that time. Yeah, I'll just nip out there. No, you won't. It's a, you have to go in a lottery. You get a ticket to be at the crater. I mean, that is amazing. So it will get bigger. No question about that. Um, obviously, things will never be the same. Never be. The, they're not, even in the time I've been going on, it's, you can tell the difference. I suppose it's down to us. Obviously, the reenactors all play a part. Hopefully not dominating, but um, it's down really to us, the people that have got an interest to kind of shape the future. What we actually do, I don't know precisely. Um, obviously the ceremonies will go on, which, which, which is good of course. It's difficult, obviously with the Burville battery, you thought that would be a, something that will go on, but... Um, Talk to us about that. Talk to us about what's happening at the Merville Battery at the moment. 
Well, over the last 10 years, the battery, obviously, it was when it first opened, there was just the one case, mate, which was the museum itself. And in the last 10 years, the whole site has been developed. The three other casemates, or gun casemates, and our little museums, and the number one is a sight and sound experience. The site itself has been developed and they've refurbished to a magazine, which is very useful. Hopefully they'll do the command post. But uh, it's my belief, I mean, it was a ninth parachute battalion battle, and then next day three commando went in after reports that the guns were firing two troops of three commander so really they should have in my opinion they should have concentrated on those two it didn't need at the moment you've got third um, casemate is about the commandos but it's about the whole first special service brigade and the number four casemate really is supposed to be about six air landing brigade but it's mainly belgian uh, and although the belgian did pass by during the breakout, they weren't at the battery. But it didn't need to become a general museum. You've got Memorial Pegasus covering the Sixth Airborne Division history. And I think it would have been better for the museum and its future if they concentrated on being a, on its own history. But of course, um, I can't remember many years ago, you know, but the Dakota arrived. Caused a lot of controversy because it's in American marking got some provenance for dropping paras up their end and it's been little battles like that but the visitor numbers have increased and there was no doubt they did need a new car park a bigger car park and certainly another kind of entrance building because at the moment it was just a little shed so what's happening there tell us about that then there's big changes afoot isn't there the yeah there's the field sort of to the west Bouldering the battery and the road is the field really where the, the attack came in from. And I was on the committee three odd years ago when it was first raised. And my first point that I raised was, please do not build on the attack room. And everybody on the committee agreed. The mayor, um, all the, because it's, it's about eight French and four British on the committee, although there was only two of us at that particular meeting. And it was minuted as such. And I was quite happy about that. That was really, I felt that was, it had been set in stone. Anyway, 18 months ago, there was a decision. There were three proposals or architects that were given the task. And they came up with three ideas. Of course, one of these things was, in the meantime, the, the Dakota became, um, something like called a national treasure or something, so it needed to be protected. It needed protecting anyway from the element. So then it had to be a hangar. But the main thing was the car park and the, the building. So yeah, they got the, they chose, um, unfortunately, I didn't go to the meeting, which I always regret, I couldn't get there. Um, but my three colleagues, military colleagues on this, picked one of the options, which they believe was the best one, which had this hangar across the attack room. So I complained about it. And over the last 18 months, it's kind of, I don't know, I've been a bit smoke and mirror. It's, it's difficult to say. Um, 
I thought that things going on in the background, perhaps because we were, in, it was implied that it wasn't the hangar wasn't set in concrete kind of thing, and they'd need to raise the money, more money. That was what I was led to believe. But the it was in the March this year uh, meeting where I noticed they'd got the money for the hangar, and I asked a question about moving the hangar, and was told no. So that's when I resigned and. Uh, starting to make things public about it, but, but my concerns about it are obviously it's right across the attack route and you're building on topography which is sacred ground. It's, and that's one of the reasons you'd go to the battery. Although, because people said, oh, no one's mentioned it before, what well, I did, and, I, and they said, oh, people are not interested in the attack route. I don't believe that. You know, if you're interested in the Merville battery, you go there and you picture in your mind what went on, where they came from, where they went to, all different actions, this kind of thing. I don't believe people go there just to look at four concrete casemates without questioning. So yeah, it's across the attack route. My other concern is it is huge. This hangar will be huge. It will dominate the site. It will change the focus of the site. And of course, it won't be a hangar. It will be a museum in itself. And how can you have a, a museum of an aircraft which wasn't there splitting the history of a 9th Battalion site? I don't get it, I'll be honest with you. But um, they justify all this with um, the response visitor numbers. And I think you know, enough is enough. You get to a point where it can't justify things like that. What the answer is, I don't know, but um, well, it will be built. There's no way that we'll ever stop it now. Um, and it's very, very sad. Very sad. Just um, to clarify something on that, um, regarding the Merville hangar that It was a joint British, as I say, and French um, decision, although I would say that the, the three British were given a fake complete when it came. It came to the three options. Um, the problem was we weren't consulted when the specification was written that was sent to the architects. But then I always thought I'd got my I'd got my little statement set in stone and that was going to be one of the guiding factors. Perhaps I should have known better. The third and final part of this series will be out very shortly. In this we'll be discussing Jeff Howard's experiences with the 1st and 7th Middlesex Battalion, the commando's important role and experiences of Stan Scott with number 3 commando, as well as learning a little bit more about Neil's current work looking at the blowing of the five bridges across the river dives and divette. Again, a special thanks to all those that helped with these episodes, Neil, Robin, John and Sam, the Colchester Barracks and of course you for listening. We really appreciate your support. Stay tuned for more. We'll be back very soon.